three, two, one. This is Bebop Tabletop, the podcast that's turning each episode of Cowboy Bebop into a tabletop RPG. I'm Michael Janoff. I'm Lee Jo John. I'm Andrew Wu. And together, we're remixing the characters, music, and themes into a game you can play. Let's jam. Hello, you brilliant masterminds. Welcome to Bebop Tabletop Session 8, Waltz for Venus. I'm Andrew, and with me again are Michael and Lee Joe. Hello. Hey, hey. Would we have been friends if we had met earlier? Probably. <laughs> I mean, I've known you for already too long, so I would I can't do it much, much earlier than this. But we could try. We could try. Uh, today, we are visiting Venus. We are looking at... Venus sickness. All right, we are looking at all sorts of. It's fun to visit a new planet and see the gorgeous new dangerous things that are out here to kill us. Right. But it's a nice. It's a nice sickness. It's a nice. It's a nice threatening uh, <laughs> danger. It's only a problem if you don't have money. That's true. That does seem to be a recurring theme in this show. The uh, the the Venus sickness appeared to be uh, dandelion puffs. It seems 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 what it was at the end. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like they were just, they looked like regular harmless springtime plants, right? No, have you seen allergies? (laughs) Oh no, is this just, was this whole thing just a Claritin ad? (laughs) Got space allergies? Get some gray ash. (laughs) Buy Claritin at your local pharmacy. Side effects may be becoming very poor. Oh no. (laughs) Oh no, (laughs) I feel bad. Do you think the Bebop crew has, uh, has health insurance? It seems very unlikely. Very I unlikely. don't think they have food most of the time. Today, Ein got to have some dog food, right? It's beautiful. It's the first time Hooray. that Faye didn't eat his dog food. <laughs> yeah, and finally we get the the sweet taste of victory. The first oh, time yes. in the uh, the first time in the series, I believe. Yeah, I don't think they've ever won. I don't think they've ever won. At least on on tape, anyway. All right, should we get this started with a summary? Let's do it. Let's do it. The Bebop crew stop a hijacking on a passenger ship to Venus and finally, finally collect money for a successful bounty. While Faye takes her earnings to the casino, Spike meets Rocco, a young criminal who begs to be taught some cool moves. The brief lesson is interrupted and Rocco runs from the gangsters and hands Spike a precious package. The crew discovers the plant is worth millions since it is a rare cure for Venus sickness and that Rocco's gang has a bounty. Spike also discovers that Rocco's sister Stella is blind from the disease. Spike meets Rocco at the edge of town and is ambushed by the gang. Rocco joins Spike in the fight, but just as he becomes fluid like water, he is gunned down. Faye manages to capture the gang's leader, but it is too late for Rocco. Later, Spike visits Stella as she is being treated. She learns about Rocco's death, and Spike tells her he was a terrific guy. The session ends as spores fall down like snow. I would say this episode was beautiful, right? In more ways than one. It was visually nice to see a new place and a, a very alien kind of spot. A very Those floating islands were very strange. It was nice to see, uh, the story-wise also, it was very bittersweet, right? This ending was uh, clearly telegraphed from the beginning. It was going to be, things were never going to turn out well for Rocco, right? Uh, similar to the first session where things were never going to work out for Katarina, right? Uh, we were getting back to that vibe again. Yeah, it was it was it was a gorgeous episode, and I think the the 
the falling like snow at the end is kind of a uh, kind of uh, goes back to that that kind of somber but uh, you know kind of quietly beautiful theming and menacing right it is beautiful yeah. and menacing mm, yeah I believe the director he's done he's done this with his other shows this kind of it makes me think of Les Mis with the whole you're doing you're committing a crime for to you know provide for your family or provide for a loved one i'm almost certain he's done it with with samurai shampoo and honestly he does it repeatedly uh, with this whole you know your situation is forced your hand you're doing crime because you have to who who is this week's javert then who who's hunting them down relentlessly forever that's a good question i mean the gang is clearly the biggest antagonist but Technically, I mean, the government is also chasing him down. He has a bounty, uh, not a not a not a large one, but he has a bounty, and that uh, he it's lucky that Spike found him first, right? Mm. Or maybe not so lucky. <laughs> I guess he might have survived otherwise, right? Maybe. If only he got tackled down in the end. Who knows? Mm. Maybe it would. Maybe the glass vial would have broken when he fell to the ground. Oh, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> Or maybe he'd watch where he's peeing, you know. Oh goodness, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, the the scenery was was beautiful. We had a lot of a lot of really neat shots. We had a a, a downed cruiser in the middle of the desert. Um, the the interior of that cruiser. We had a, a, a space plane, space plane interior mm-hmm. that was that was that was somewhat novel. Um, we got to see that a. Uh, spaceport looked a lot like a like an airport <laughs> it, it made me worry about taking off my belt yeah oh no. <laughs> no this is before that that's right this is before that this is 1998 none of that existed yeah <laughs> oh no oh no but, uh, uh, I, I honestly i'm uh, i'm a huge fan of the desert slash you know middle eastern slash northern african mm-hmm. uh kind of motif the desert and the life that lives in you know such a extreme environment there's definitely uh what looked almost like a mosque was possibly the i think that was a hospital or maybe just uh another mm-hmm. just building in the location again the 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 desert scenes it's it's honestly probably the most and oh the floating islands of course um it's just honestly one of the most interesting scenes or one of the interesting worlds we've seen so far in my opinion and then we tie that together with learning about spike's philosophy and spike teaching how to fight and how to be like Stillwater, to be like Clearwater. Kind of that Bruce Lee Zen mentality. It, it, all, it all ties together very, very nicely. So one of the things we could talk a little bit about this week is that they won. The gang finally wins. They win something for the first time in eight episodes. <laughs> <laughs> that made me start thinking about how you know, we should discuss maybe a little bit about what does winning look like in our game? We, we've talked about botting me out. We've talked about losing. You know, we still want players to feel good about losing, but they're not that good, I guess. If we want to talk about winning, we probably should have a hard counter to that. Like, yeah, you won. You did it. You're the heroes. Well, uh, what, what did they end up winning with in this episode? They uh, they just got they got some hard cash, right? They they brought in three, three, I think it was, three... Uh... Bounties and got Louis Huey and Dewey. Yep, <laughs> that's that's right. <laughs> and uh, they got they got one and a half million wulongs, which mm-hmm. uh, I, I seem to recall that being on the low end. Um, most of the criminals mm-hmm. 
one of the earlier weeks, like a giraffe, I remember, was $3 million. Um, I don't remember what others were, but... I think Maria Murdoch was $25 million. Oh, well, she was an eco-terrorist, so I guess <laughs> these... Well, these are these are plane terrorists, so I don't know what the <laughs> what the comparison looks like here. It's a little little skewed. M- money is irrelevant. It doesn't matter. Almost <laughs> like it's all made up. <laughs> Everything's made up and the money doesn't matter. <laughs> they give a bio of the different bounties on the the, the ISSP, I think it is, the the mm-hmm. space police. Um they give what they're known for and thinking and robbering and murder and all sorts of other stuff. And I've been writing them down week to week and I haven't seen a whole lot of correlation with the, <laughs> with the <laughs> rewards. So, you know, what does this mean for our game? Is it just, uh, this is the hard one. So this is the it, reward. It feels for like hard game one. masters get free range, right? But yeah, whatever, whatever number feels good this week. I think that's the number to pick. I would make the argument that, that money is only worth what you can buy with it, correct? Mm. In a in in any RPG, I can give you, you know, in D and D, I can give you thousands of gold. But if there's nothing worth buying, uh, who cares, right? You need some sort of item, or you need a a base, or you need something to work towards. Or possibly in this scenario, it also sounds like everybody has massive debt in this uh, cyberpunk <laughs> space punk sort of universe. So. <laughs> maybe maybe that's what the winning is for to reduce your debts <laughs> well Faye spends it all on gambling so Faye takes 400k goes straight to the casino and loses it all I think we find out by the end she loses it all already <laughs> winning in Cowboy Bebop means making a pit boss very happy <laughs> the house always wins yes <laughs> I like that they get money on something called a universal money card it's printed on the their oh. little credit cards Spike uses some sort of transfer device where (laughs) uh, you have to put your card on one side and then the other person's card on the other side, and then you transfer the money across and you see the amounts. It's very Pokemon. It's very like like I'm hooking up my Game Boy to your Game Boy to trade Pokemon. It looked like a Pokedex. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it had a little fold-out, yeah. Oh, man. I guess they just don't have space Venmo yet. <laughs> it's funny what visions of the future seem to miss out <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> Wasn't that long ago? Do we, have, do we have smartphones in 1988? <laughs> no, we did not. Yeah, not, we did to, not. Not to the capacity that we have them now. Absolutely not. But. So that device was high tech. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it might be one of those things. So something I was thinking about was that perhaps losing bottoming out gives you narrative rewards while winning actually succeeding in your bounty minus damages of course just nets you cash and it might be too early for us still to decide well we don't know what the cash will be spent on ship upgrades scale upgrades things of that nature right i I think it's premature to go too deep into that at this point but maybe it's just cash maybe it is maybe winning is actually less interesting than losing Winning is the dreams that you can think of for the things mm-hmm. you're going to buy, which we haven't talked about much yet. <laughs> w- winning might be the small jackpot, right? So in a, in a slot machine, <laughs> you might win a little bit, but it won't be the big number that they show you at the top of the slot machine. You win a little bit, and that just makes you keep wanting to come, keep pulling that lever so that you keep hoping for the big jackpot. We'll just drip feed that dopamine for you. So I would have to imagine living primarily in space has got to be incredibly expensive. 
Um, and I think about Cowboy Bebop and I think about, you know, the other uh, Space Western in my formative years of Firefly. They never, they never really spent money on stuff. It felt like they were always spending money on their ship, which is always on the just brink of falling apart. So ship upgrades are always good, but sometimes, you know, especially if we talk about motivation trackers and the world clock, your ship is probably going to take a hit or two by the by the end of a mission or two. Ship ship is probably the biggest money sink. Mm-hmm. So in both of those shows and most space westerns, thematically, they want the crew to be hungry. That is the purpose of always keeping them down. And we want to... We want to have that mood in our game as well. And yeah, we probably just have to find some way to leech away their gold as often as possible. Well, when you put it like that. <laughs> don't, don't tell your players. Yeah, uh, any, any DMs listening to this, don't tell your players that you're just stealing their money all the time. Yeah, it's a, it's a, fine, it's a fine line to walk because it, it depends, on the table, uh, depends on the table how much bookkeeping the collective you as the characters and the GM want to actually do. We can get very fastidious about how much it costs to run a crew of four people and how much fuel it takes to go from place to place and how much dog food you need to feed your eight Welsh corgis. <laughs> and you could do that. You could come up with that if, if you want. And, you know, for our, some of the other tabletop games we've been talking about, there are systems to track that sort of thing if you want. Some tables don't. So I I think kind of the various other negative repercussions we've talked about maybe should be the the chief drain on those sorts of resources. Mm-hmm. But you you do bring up a good point about you know what what's keeping you going forward. You know what's the goal that you're reaching towards. I think the party starving on this ship is p- potentially outside the scope of what we've kind of discussed in general. <laughs> unless you know people don't want to play the game anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I find that keeping keeping something cool just out of monetary reach is always the most fun thing. Yeah. Not only do they have to either work for it, or they find some clever way to get their money. In one of the D&D campaigns that we work with, my players wanted to, uh, and this is one that Wu is in, uh, wanted to buy a guild hall and start a guild. So I made it prohibitively expensive. They then, with a little bit of charisma and bribery, they convinced a local uh, noblewoman to fund their endeavor, and that led to a different chain of events. And I thought, I had nothing planned for any of that, but that was a fun thing to happen. And so, like, yeah, rewards should be there. Just uh, be prepared for your your party to find a way to get that reward. Hmm. Something almost like that happened this week in the episode where they cash in one bounty, Spike comes home, and Jet says, hey, want to get another one? I think I like that feeling. I think I like that idea that, yeah, you just won, but I could always, I could always eat. I'm always hungry. I could go for more. I think building that loop is, is probably important for us. Building building that idea that, hey, yeah, why don't you keep playing? You don't want to keep playing. You're making the microtransactions of the RPG world? I'm looking at loot boxes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we've already talked about gambling. We've already talked about addiction. <laughs> this is a... Uh, are we evil? Are we the baddies? Well, I guess what's the... Uh... 
what is the what is the player reward? You know, we're talking about a character reward. You know, what's the what's the player positive feedback mm-hmm. for feeding back into the loop? You know, in 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 other words, what makes it fun? <laughs> yeah, that's the hard part. <laughs> you know, what what is nice about finishing the thing? I mean, like I I don't I don't know how many one shots you've tried. Or uh, monsters, monster of the week is somehow how mm-hmm. it's also uh, described, or mission of the week, where it's you know very pop in, pop out. Everything is very self-contained. You leave, you come in, you drop in. This week we're this week we're hunting the the Tate monster, uh, <laughs> you know, and it's self-contained. It's totally not on my desk. Um, <laughs> the uh, next week we're facing the mug monster, you know. So you know what makes you come back to want to face the mug monster? Um, was it because the gameplay was fun or was it because you knew you were going to get a reward? Cause the other version is, all right, this campaign, we're going to kill God. It'll take 80 sessions. <laughs> yeah. The JRPG problem. Yes. <laughs> question, 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 kill God. Yes. So what's the, you know, I, I, I feel like we, we have a little bit of both here. Mm-hmm. We've talked about, we've talked about personal story character arcs. We've talked about, Every week is a monster of the week. Every week is a new mm-hmm. mission. Yep. So that's the self contain. We haven't we haven't gotten to those that are particularly arc arc ish. Yes. Yep. But there is clearly an implied arc at this point. I think with like character backgrounds mm-hmm. at least. So we we've kind of got you know what what keeps you coming back. I think we've talked about a little bit, and I think it's the character arcs. Mm-hmm. Or the character, you know, individual character motivations. Right. I, I think that is the main. I mean, that is the main joy of playing a long-running campaign. That is why I come back next week. Mm-hmm. Usually, I don't care about fake gold. Not really. <laughs> I would like real gold, though. You care about fake characters. But, yeah, I care about fake characters, not <laughs> fake gold. Yeah. <laughs> oh, weird. <laughs> I mean, when it comes down to it, you're playing advanced make-believe with your friends right and you want (laughs) you want to have fun and you want you want your player to be cool or at least go through something that's memorable and it sometimes that's not always you know an achievement sometimes it is a crushing defeat or an agonizing decision or something so last thing we want this uh, the you know cowboy bebop to be is bland because it's not the world is exciting Mm. the stakes are high we want it's not necessarily all action all the time, but I, I want I want people to be engaged when they're in this world. Yeah, that is, again, our stated mission here is to recreate the cool feeling of Cowboy Bebop. And, yeah, figuring that out is, that's, that's, we're, we're getting into it. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see where that goes. So last week we talked about dice rolling. Uh, did we want to get into a little bit about stats? Do we want to talk about that this week? We can't start our start or stop our our meters without some sort of stats, right? Yeah. Uh, we still haven't determined a name for the meters. They're motivation trackers. We will come up with something cool, or please tell us something cool. We've danced around talking about stats for the last three or four weeks or so. Uh, we touched on lightly, so. One of the things that we wanted to look at are the very normal in TTRPG simple checks, right? Let me know if I'm 
describing this incorrectly at any point, too, because... Eh. Uh, the So a simple check would be something like, hey, I've come across... Uh, you know, I, I enter the pub and I want to convince somebody to do something. So in Dungeons & Dragons, uh, I look at my charisma stat and I say, okay, it says... I have this modifier to a dice roll, so I roll a d20 and add this modifier, and the dungeon master has also set some sort of difficulty level based on how they think that encounter, how difficult that encounter should be. If you roll higher than that, awesome. You've convinced them of something. If you roll lower than that, you lose, right? You didn't do it. Something we were trying to figure out how to integrate was, well, we've got a decent concept for our encounter rolling system with our filling up meters, but we haven't yet talked about our a way to do a simple check. You guys want to take it from there and describe a couple of the approaches we talked about a little bit off air? Yeah, so when we were talking about motivation trackers, we were rolling various sized polyhedrals to get those numbers up. Filling up 50, we, uh, and during this encounter, we, let's say, we roll a d4. If we roll a four, great, it fills that number up by four, and it's a pretty, it's the best you could have done. If you roll a one, you still fill the meter, but it doesn't do very much. Um, so it's still, it's still moving forward. That's not particularly binary. That's, you fill it. You always, you always go forward. So, what is the what is the pass fail criteria version of that? And uh, we thought it made sense to at least we were still floating the idea, but we thought it made sense to try to keep the same dice roll. So if you would have rolled a d4 during the meter filling encounter, then it would follow that you would roll a d4 during the one-off encounter as well. Mm-hmm. And we floated the idea that the skill level of your character for a skill, we'll talk about attributes later, the skill level is a, um, is a specific field of activities and actions that your character could fulfill. And we said, okay, un- untrained regular folk off the street can do anything with a D4. That is the, that is the default. If you're a little no, bit normal human person rolls with a D4 on all activities. Normal right? human four, right? Um, yep. You can figure something out, um, mm-hmm. but what that does is that it gives you that it gives you you know the low end. Every dice is going to have the low end uh, of one, but it caps you out at four. Mm-hmm. And then as you as your character is more trained or uh, more ex- has more expertise in a certain field, their dice go up. So if they're a little more trained, they go up to a D6, and suddenly they have all these two new numbers they could roll. And then if they're even more trained, they get a D8, so they get two new numbers they could roll, 7 and 8, and so on, 12 and 10 and 12 and uh, 20. We're not going up to 100 for this. Um, <laughs> that, that is the, the skill version. And we talked, we like the idea of, um, I think previously in Motivation Tracker, we talked about accelerating the dice and going, mm-hmm. building up higher as the stakes go on. But for uh, one-off, it doesn't, there, there, there's no acceleration. But we still like the idea of um, somehow being, uh, D&D has a great system for advantage and disadvantage. So the advantage is you go up a dice and disadvantage is you go down. And the lowest you can go down is a D2, which you could either mm-hmm. flip a coin or roll a D4 and cut it in half and round up. Your choice. <laughs> 
We should get coins made up. Uh, Ein on one side, and I don't know what's on the other side. Bebop, maybe? Is Ein the, the good or the bad? <laughs> oh, that's a good point. Yeah, no, I guess you have to call it. <laughs> you have to call which one. Ein or an empty, uh, empty dog food can. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's much better than my idea of Spike and Vicious. <laughs> that that is good though. <laughs> yeah, I I also floated the idea of should there be some sort of chaotic luck to it, as we always continue to reference D and D. There is something wonderfully chaotic about somebody who is not qualified in a subject rolling the natural twenty. And yes, uh, for those who are sticklers for the rules, I know that a nat twenty is not an automatic success. But we do give a bit of leeway to it regardless, right? The idea that any idiot can row, has a 5% chance of succeeding is just funny. I know it's not likely it's in the in a realistic sense asking a total idiot to uh, to figure out a password. You're saying that they have a 5% chance of cracking it? Yeah, unlikely. But it, it, there's just something wildly funny about it. And just you roll with those punches with those nat 20s, right? As a DM, you just like, oh, well, you somehow you did this, this and this. And now you uh, you typed in your mother's maiden name and some reason that cracked the password. Uh <laughs> So I don't know how to incorporate that kind of lunacy, but I do love it. And if we can, I would like to still do it. Well, there's uh, a, a couple a couple ways we can go about doing that. And th- there is one version of you could just take the highest version of whatever dice you're rolling as as the spontaneous success. So you, your, your fours, your six, your eights, your tens. What you run into is as you get more skilled you're less likely to have a spontaneous success, which is kind of weird. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, you know, what if there's uh, what if there's some other version of that? Like, um, again, spitballing. Maybe, uh, maybe a D four and D six. You well, D D twenty, D twenty, D twenty systems sometimes have the idea of you don't crit until you do it twice in a row. <laughs> and you know, if if we're saying that as we get more skilled, the likelihood that you're allowed to succeed exceptionally well diminishes is kind of weird. So, mm-hmm. what if for D four and D six, you critically succeed if you roll that twice? So you mm-hmm. roll a D four and then you do it again. So you have twenty five percent and then twenty five percent independent rolls. Right. Um, it's not quite five. I don't. Uh, it's not quite five percent, but it's close. I can't do the math that fast, but yes. One one sixteenth, right? Your 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 odds are a little bit less on the d six, which is a little weird, but uh, it's it's a little easier to remember. Yeah, I'm not opposed. Uh, I, I that's I think that's a, that's fair, right? I mean, critical successes should not be super easy, but the fact that they're available, I think, at least gives you. Because I mean, what is what are we doing half the time? We're just kind of gambling, right? So <laughs> it's uh, I think the the odds are not fantastic, but they're there. You can you absolutely can attempt it. That just gave me a thought, and I don't know if this applies here or not, or if this is a non sequitur. But I love the idea. So if we're trying to open up a locked door, and again, I'm Joe Schmo off the street. I'm Huey or Dewey or Louie off the street and trying to pick this lock with my D four, and I hit that four. And the idea might be like, okay, that was successful, but it was not enough to open that door. Right. But now I can do it again, 
But if I if I roll a one, so if I roll a four, awesome, the door opens, great. We we succeed, we get to keep moving. But if I roll a one this time, so give myself another twenty five percent chance. If I roll a one, the guards are alerted. I've triggered an alarm. Really bad things happen at that point. Right? This idea that now you are yeah. If you, in your first roll, if you roll a one, you just fail and you can't do it again. Right. But if you roll a four, you get to continue, and now you can either succeed wonderfully or take a terrible punishment for it. Like maybe, maybe that's some way to counter that. Uh, kind of like a push your luck kind of mechanic. Mm. Yes. Raising so, stakes. So push your luck is fun, right? And and this this way also, as a super skilled individual, if you're rolling a d12, you don't have to put you don't have to push your luck, right? You you can succeed instead. That. That puts that that puts a cap. So one thing that does is it puts a cap on doing things that you probably shouldn't be doing in the first place. Mm. Um, I mean, there's always the you gave the the example of getting caught by the guards. You know, th- there is the version of it too where you're just success not successful and that thing happens anyway. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so so there could be that risk involved with it. I guess as a player, how would you know? <laughs> mm, that's a good point. Yeah. Like unless that is very clearly broadcast in yeah. some way, yeah. And what we haven't talked about yet is what does success look like in this system without being mm. critically, spontaneously successful? And we floated the idea of using the dice roll, the 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 maximum dice amounts as the difficulty counters. So. Um, I, I think we talked about two versions, but we've got we've got several polys, but we've got difficulty levels of of, of two, which is the, mm-hmm. the coin flip: two, four, six, eight, ten, twelve, twenty. Um, mm-hmm. And what does that mean? It means that if you are a Joshima off the street, a D D two uh, or a a skill challenge two has a fifty fifty chance for a Joshimo. Um Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't know if we want to say I think I think meet or beat is it, it tends to be a little bit easier to follow mm-hmm. rather than beat outright um, I think meet or beat is it tends to be more intuitive but right because uh, that way you know the number yeah and when you hit that number you feel good yeah right? so meet or beat too and mm-hmm. so so it's it's 75 percent chance so yeah pretty good um but then next level is four so Joshmo has 25 percent chance then you get a D6 or a challenge six and like you, the person can't do that unless they roll a D4 twice. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Otherwise, what's the point in rolling? Right. There's your, your, you don't have those skills. You cannot, you don't even realize there's a challenge there necessarily. The, um, that's, that's the different levels. Um, and, and that way there is, there is some barrier to the mm-hmm. uh, highly trained work, um, and and hey hey here's here's an idea too. What if the what if the skill level? So uh, I, I'm just going to use the name of the dice. So skill skill four, skill eight, skill ten, so mm-hmm. on. What if in order to so let's say the the skill is six. So a skill mm-hmm. six challenge. I only have I, I am not trained my character is not trained in mm-hmm. in advanced um, mug drinking but I can certainly try and I roll mm-hmm. a d4 
And in order to get to that D6, I have to succeed on the D4 again. Mm-hmm. But let's say the challenge was 10, and I only have a skill of 4. Mm-hmm. I'd roll a D4 to get me up to the next level, roll a D4 again to get me up to the next level, and then roll mm-hmm. a 4 again. Right, to, to actually just make it to that, that so, third. You're, you're two levels above, so step, you have to roll stepping two levels. times. Yeah, oh, that's interesting. And the odds it's that, kind of hmm. it's kind of an exploding dice idea. It's exploding right? dice. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I was about to say there there's several uh systems like uh kids on brooms, I believe, is one where if you hit that critical number you get to roll again. And you know, mm. and again, as long as you keep hitting that critical number. So even though you might have had a test that is uh should have been impossible for you, there is a chance. Mm-hmm. Here's another idea. So he, here's the paradox. Um, and we, we can we can think about the the probability of it later. Should the dice increase? So if you need to hit a ten, and you roll and you're at a four, you roll a d4, you have a twenty five percent chance. You mm-hmm. go up to the next level because you rolled that four. Do you roll a d4 again and have a twenty five percent chance, or do you roll a d6? You roll a d6 is what I was thinking at first. Yeah. Because <laughs> the person who's at a six is going to have to roll a d6. Mm-hmm. It's still better odds than rolling D four twice, but yeah, I kind of I kind of like the idea that you roll the higher die. Like you've you've managed a success that lets you play with the big boys now, yeah. right? Like mm-hmm. it's like uh, you you bluffed your way into a conversation. Like you know you're, you're confidently swaggering into a room with a bunch of experts, and you just happen to say the right thing that got their attention. And now you're able to play with some bigger vocabulary, right? You can say say nicer things, so you roll that d6 instead. Uh, it makes it harder for it to explode, but you still, yeah, you, you still keep trying, right? <laughs> and if you're if you're trying to bluff two levels up, like yeah, again, we will have to do some math on this if this is what we go with, but it might get yeah, it might get hard. I was going to say, it leads me to a couple of questions. Uh, one, mm-hmm. is, so is every situation, is there an ability to roll for it? If the, if the, if your attempted DC is 15, and if I, by all means, is it okay that I, Mr. D4, uh, who apparently has all the luck in the world, to, do you let me continue to roll for it? D4, D6, D8, until I've cracked it. Or is there a hard limit? Uh, again, even with D&D, sometimes the DC is 30, and you can roll uh, your modifiers and get 25, and that's the highest you can get, you know, outside of a nat 20s, you know, critical. But, like, should I have let you roll for that in the first place? Depends on the table. And to your to your earl- earlier comment, um, if you have a 5% chance every single time, then yes, you should roll. Mm-hmm. Because a 5% chance is better than no. There are there are two approaches to that problem, <laughs> and it's a, it's very tonal to, tonally defined of the game you want to play. Yeah, and I think it reminds me of something. I think we said two weeks ago now too, is that if you really don't want your party to go there, don't let them roll for it. And then alternatively, um, is if it is it so we have we definitely have you know the one as our failure and our four and our highest number as a as a success our exploding dice. But what what about the middle numbers? Are they is this a mixed success? Is a is this generally a failure if you don't make it? Uh, if you if your if your number is an eight for some reason or whatever you know a ten and I only make a nine for the the roll is that am I am I doomed? Am I or do I succeed somewhat or what is I guess are we just saying 
it's it's pass or fail here, you know? I do like the idea of mixed successes and mixed failures, right, as much as possible. Uh, some things are binary, right? And in, in those cases, probably whatever DC you set just has to hold. But I think for many, many things, like, hey, if if my player leveled up three times in exploding dice and then missed by one at the end, ooh, I feel like I have to give him something, right? There, there's no way I'm going to be like, nope, you lose. Better luck next time. No, no, I feel like, hey, each of these steps uh, probably would have to be described narratively in some way, mm-hmm. right? Once you roll that four, it's like, oh, okay, this is what you're trying to do. Let's explain in, in scene setting what just happened, right? What did you do that lets you level up temporarily? Right? And then every time you do that, that has to be true, right? We have to describe what just happened here. And based on how, like, again, if you didn't quite make it to the next highest number, yeah, you we've already established some level of success from that first explosion. So that still holds true, right? Whether or not the rest of it collapses, whether that or not that first explosion is enough, that first success is enough. I think it's just up to DM at that point, how you feel like playing that scene now. I, I would personally opt for rewarding your players for even trying, right? Do something weird. What is the criteria for a mixed success? If there is a challenge of six, challenge of six implies, if, if it's meet or beat six, challenge of six implies that a trained, uh, let, let, let's say a, uh, an early trade professional mm-hmm. can achieve this with luck. Mm-hmm. And a trained, a seasoned professional, a D8, let's just say, can achieve it with, boy, six, seven, eight. Um, not that much better odds. Mm. Still, yeah. It's still rather challenging. So you could go half. So you could say half the challenge is a partial so I mean, mm-hmm. there, there's way, ways about it, and we can we can talk about how this affects. But half could be partial six something. So uh, you could do success at a cost is a way of handling mm-hmm. it, um, and that that lowers that lowers the bar, and that, that brings it to that 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 brings you into a paradox because let's say you well well if if a challenge is six and half is partial success Mm -hmm. success with a cost so that means that you can roll a d4 and you roll a four you could succeed at a cost or you could raise your stakes and succeed Mm. more fully okay um half seems a little high of a number because then we get to eight and eight brings you down to four but then yeah that it it, half seems a little bit high half seems high we could pick a number. It might just be one more. Yeah, one. It, it just might be like uh, out of six if you roll a five, out of eight if you roll a seven, right? It might just be off one. You just double your chances, yeah. I guess. It's still easier yeah. to to read, too. Like mm-hmm. if you know yeah. what the challenge is, and it's, oh, it's one off success with a success at a cost. Yeah. Yeah, because it does make twenties incredibly difficult. What's that? It makes twenties incredibly difficult. And twenties probably shouldn't come up very often at all. Yeah. <laughs> like, to, like as we're talking about it, like all of these dice step by two. Twenty is just mm-hmm. way out there. Yeah. <laughs> twenty is almost irrelevant. Superhuman. Yeah. Twenty is 
plot plot uh <laughs> <laughs> only if you have the strongest of plot armor five percent five percent ten percent chance to succeed at any at any rate is is a little bit yeah. punishing <laughs> if you are a if going by our system you are in a the best of the best trained professional you have a 10 percent chance of succeeding at any amount <laughs> so- oh, geez, yeah. <laughs> sounds sounds a bit of a darker tone than our game would suggest but maybe maybe 20s don't just don't come up that often like all, all the other right. dice steps are stepping by two and that seems like a like a more reasonable progression and then we step mm-hmm. by eight and then it's just in the stratosphere so i don't think we've seen a 20 yet we might later on in the series but i don't think we've seen one yet 20 could be a skill but not a challenge 20 20 you are still you can still swing Anywhere in that range of twenty, I think that makes sense. Like, like our most professional people, like our our best. I don't. I don't know if any of our characters are at a twenty, right? That we've seen in in any skill. But you can but accelerate to a twenty. Yes, I think situationally there might be a time where, oh, the team is working together so well that oh, we've bumped our way into a twenty. We've we've accelerated. Yeah, a D twenty is still very sweet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I I like the idea of of, of keeping keeping twelve as the, the the feasible maximum. And if it's twenty, then it's kind of not a roll. <laughs> Your player's still gonna try. I'm still gonna try. I'm saying when, when we run this game, I'll go for twenty. Yeah. <laughs> I cast the spell at the Tarask. Well. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no way this goes wrong. Um, so that's so that's a little bit about skills. We we, we talked about uh, having probably probably gonna have to start wrapping up here, but um, yeah. um, I'll t- touch very very briefly. Uh, we floated the idea of having specializations within skills. So just as a an extra extra bit of flavor that we could throw in there, probably it would have to roll into more of a character design session. But um, mm-hmm. um, I I have. Uh, uh, a D a D8 in uh, knowledge of esoteric knowledge mm-hmm. making stuff up here. Um, but I specialize in Martian beers, knowledge of Martian beers. Right. Um, you know, may, maybe if that very esoteric thing comes up, the esoteric knowledge within the esoteric skill tree uh, <laughs> or, or skill line, then, uh, you know, let's say it's a D8 and then you just, you just bump up to the next level. So you bump up to right. D10. Yeah, that's your a free a free upgrade. That's your your yeah. specialization. There's also the idea of what if you're just in a bad spot. Um, mm-hmm. Your character is trying to do something and they're just disadvantaged in some way. You go down, you know, down. You're, and you're allergic. You're you're suffering from mild venous sickness. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you're. Yeah, you know, actually though, that that's cool though. You know, you are suffering some condition. Um, mm-hmm. You have some. It seems a little weird, but maybe something in the skill that you're particularly not good at for some reason. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, things like that. Even things like maybe you're scared of clowns and that you just lose a die because you're scared <laughs> of clowns. Yeah. Yeah, totally. There's, there's, no, there's no remembering what modifiers to do here. It's Yeah. You step down, you, you step up. Step down or step up. 
And I think that's I think that's actually cortex ver- verbiage. I think that's exactly what they call it. Step down, step up. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe you don't step up or down more than once. I think that makes sense. Yeah. We can accelerate up, but you can't. Yeah, you can't step up twice, probably. Otherwise, it gets pretty confusing. What about yeah. um, another player helping uh, a player with a check? Now, would you want to continue a step up, or do you want to consider that like advantage disadvantage? Mm. I mean, there's there's plenty of ways you could go with that. Or alternatively, they both can roll and see what happens. I think that's a version of stepping up. Sure. Yeah. Because a step up and down is 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 effectively aliased from advantage disadvantage. Yeah, originally that's what I, how I was thinking of it too. Where helping a friend bumps their die one. And that's originally what I was thinking. H- helping can be helping can be tricky. It's one it's one of those things that often narratively makes sense, but um, mechanically mechanically is, trivializes is strange. Yeah. yeah. Um, but again, you know, it happens. It happens. Like it's it's a yeah. it's a well known mechanic, and um, if if you and can help, why like not? It. Right? <laughs> right. I think players do enjoy. They do. It feels nice to cast guidance, right? Yeah. It feels it feels good to cast bless, right? Feels like you're in the scene a little bit. Like, oh look, I'll help too. Yeah. I mean, and hide hmm. because I'm weak. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's the there's the concept of what can you help with. So mm-hmm. if it's a D, if it's a D twelve, it's a skill twelve task. If you're skill four, can you help? Feels like a too many cooks situation at that point. It, it depends. Yeah, I, I think <laughs> if we're if we're if we're going with the step up, step down, advantage, disadvantage, like, and as many people can help as they want, you're only stepping up once. Different ways to play that. Let's wrap it up for this week. Uh, are there anything else we want to talk about from Venus before I don't think we ever come back to Venus? Venus always has floating cities in science fiction. <laughs> it, is the, it is the rule. I do wonder, are they on the surface? Like, they're on dirt on Venus, right? Venus, yeah, Venus has a ground. Yeah, it's... But it's also like 900 degrees. But now after it's terraformed. Where did that gas go? <laughs> Into the aerostats, I guess. <laughs> it turned into helium. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's right. That that only mattered for Spike, right? That didn't come up ever again. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then stay tuned for next week where we finally meet our last crew member when we start jamming with Edward. I'm very excited to see him. Her? Her. Turns out she's a girl. Who'd have guessed? And possibly Turkish? See you next week, Space Cowboys! Hello! Bye! Bye! Thanks for listening. If you've got questions, suggestions, or if you're starting your own Bebop Tabletop session, you can reach us on Twitter, at Bebop Tabletop. We're running a little long today? Is that how it's going? Who knows? With the power of editing... With the (laughs) air, you may be okay.